the only reason those officers were charged was because of the man's age and the fact that he got hurt. There are legal requirements. And I, I did another story of an example of like a younger woman that was pushed, flew backwards, broke ribs, perfectly legal. So yeah, it, it's context. Are the systems we have in place working? Acting as a watchdog on those in power is probably the journalist's most important role. And we're seeing that demonstrated more and more as the national debate on racial justice and police violence continues. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Madison Carter works for WKBW in Buffalo, where she's a multimedia journalist. Our Western New York producer, Amber Healy, tipped us off to some stellar investigative work Madison's done recently of uncovering corruption in a local mayor's office, as well as with some local police. Welcome to the podcast, Madison. Thank you so much for having me. It's my dream to do podcasts eventually. So I'm always excited to be on podcasts to see how they're actually done. So thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, feel free to ask any questions as to why I do something because there probably is some explanation to it that isn't necessarily apparent. But anyway, we were talking a little bit before because my wife is from Tonawanda and you're, the story that you worked on is from, about Tonawanda and that you, that you had gone to Syracuse. But, you know, we like to start out a little bit finding out about your journalist journey. Tell me, you know, what got you interested in journalism and how did you end up at WKBW? You know, so I always tell everybody I never wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a lawyer, a prosecutor. Eventually, I was hoping to become a judge. Um, that was my dream growing up. And now that I've gotten some investigative work, I have attorneys being like, you really should have gone into that field because this is this cross-examination. I was like, yes, I watched too much TV. But it was actually not until late in my high school career that somebody sat me down and they said, hey, you should think about, you know, being on TV. It's because I just, I love makeup, hair, just getting super glammed up. I've always been, you know, presentation wise, that's my thing. So I was like, yeah, like glitz and glamour, being on TV news, that sounds like a great idea. Any true journalist knows that this is some of the grimiest work. There is no glitz. There is no glamour to this, but I put some lipstick on it. I put, it's like putting lipstick on a pile of crap, honestly, a lot of the time. So yeah, so I was bamboozled really. And now we're here. (laughs) And how long you been at WKBW? About two years. I got here in the summer of 2018 after coming from Charlottesville, Virginia. And we all know about Charlottesville by now. Oh, wow. Were you down there during the, uh, the demonstration and the aftermath? Yeah, it was mostly the aftermath. I was actually at a conference the day of. So I was there every single day leading up until what happened with the Unite the Right rally. And then I got there the day after. I was like, oh, I got to get back. And so I saw the aftermath the pop-up rallies, and it really honestly helped prepare me for some of what we saw this summer with a lot of the demonstrations and the social justice movement. Things got tense here in Buffalo as well. So it, um, it really laid the groundwork for my career, which has just really, you know, been taking off lately. Let's talk a little bit about that because I haven't had a chance to talk to a TV news person about covering the demonstrations and uh, for social justice that, that have happened over this last year. What's been happening in Western New York? What have you been covering? So in Western New York, May 30th, I will never forget the date, was the first time we really had a rally. And it was, at that moment, it was a Black Lives Matter rally. They've since evolved to be demonstrating about different things. You know, the mayor's resignation because of his handling of some of this or talking about the economic dollar in the Black community. So demonstrations have evolved. People have really been using their voices. But I remember it was May 30th here. was the first night. A large group of people were coming down. And mind you, we're coming out of a pandemic, right? 
nobody has been around this amount of people in months. So we didn't know what to expect health-wise, crowd-wise, and the police didn't know how to handle it. You know, the last demonstration that was here was when President Trump came a few years ago, I believe, when he was campaigning, and it, it didn't get tense. It was just, you know, some hecklers. And so at that time, police just said, hey, we're going to give you until this time, and then you got to clear out. And when people didn't clear out, that's when we started to see the clashing. You know, they were shooting rubber bullets. There was somebody started a, a van on fire. It was really tense. It was a lot. But I think what set our coverage apart was reminding our viewers that although their city looks like something they've never seen before, it looked like a war zone, I had to keep reminding our viewers what the purpose of this was, why people came to demonstrate, because Black men are being killed with no consequence, right? And I had to let them know, you know, while I was showing them what was happening, I was telling them why it was happening. And I think that was so important throughout that demonstration and then all of the rest. Context is like a pillar of who I am as a journalist, providing context to every situation. So that's what I have to say about what happened here over the summer. Yeah, and I seem to remember, wasn't there a, an older gentleman who got knocked over by the police, the Buffalo police as well? Yeah, Martin Gugino, he was a 74-year-old protester, and he got knocked over, and that really set people off here because I did interviews internationally, you know, about that. It was a major event that people were just mesmerized by. And the people in our community were frustrated because they were like, wait a minute, violence against this older white gentleman is getting this crazy reaction, but not when it happens to a person of color. So it was a deeply frustrating moment that put Buffalo in the national spotlight for all the wrong reasons. And it really, I think, made things a lot more tense here at home. Yeah, and I think that's that speaks to your effort to try to put these things into context because, you know, we've seen in other places where the demonstrators are portrayed as rioters, that anybody who is out is a potential rioter and is, and is only there to cause violence. They're not there to do anything else. And so then it becomes, well, this is a police matter, so we, we got to back our police. And that's a very different story than, than what these demonstrators are actually involved in. Right. And that goes back to what I said, my, I call Charlottesville my training ground. That to me, if you talk to people who have historically been around protests, they're, they're typically very local. Everybody knows who's leading it. Everybody knows what the issue is. I think Charlottesville was the genesis of these outside agitators. And then now everywhere, people now have this idea like, oh, we can go to someone else's city and mess it up. And so, yeah, when you talked about those rioters, I was like, yeah, there are a couple people. They're not even from here. So I don't want to give them the attention, any attention that they don't deserve. They're doing some stuff. We don't like it. But let's talk about what's happening. Yeah. Let's talk about what the real issue is, the underlying issue. I remember talking to somebody once, and one of the things he said that really kind of stood out to me is, you know, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open for the person who comes up to try to change the conversation. That if a protest is about X, somebody comes in, well, what about this? And then suddenly they're trying to shift because they don't want to deal with what the problem is. They don't want to deal with what the protesters are actually dealing with. They want to frame it in a different way so that they can kind of defang whatever the, the message is and draw attention away from the, the message of the protester. Absolutely. I, and I see that even in my investigative work that comes up so very much. Let's talk about this instead of what we talked about here. So everything I do is training for the next story. Okay, so you've done some really interesting investigative work recently, uh, one with the NVTA, which is the, the what? That's the NFTA, the Niagara Frontier Transportation Authority. 
Okay. And then you also just recently did a story about the two-term mayor of uh, the city of Tonawanda, Rick Davis. city of Tonawanda is a, a, um, a city that, that borders Buffalo proper to the north between Buffalo and Niagara. So anyway, let's talk about the first one with the with the police. What happened with that story? Yeah, so the NFTA, this is the police service for all of our transportation. So the buses, they're the police you see in the airport on the metro rail system. And so this story actually came to me from somebody who used to work there saying, you know, their top police, their chief of police is constantly doing these things that they feel don't represent police. And they say they felt like they were just extreme, either use of force or a misuse of position on his part. So these are, you know, his own officers are saying, we have a problem with our top cop. So I started investigating, started looking into some of um, these incidents. And one was where people claimed that he beat somebody in a Metro rail station. It was a very drunk guy. And I don't want to use the word beating. I like to let people look at the video, but on the video, you can be seen, you know, coming in, arresting this guy. You see him take a a plastic bag and kind of swing it towards this guy that's drunk and handcuffed already. And they said, you know, the men were like, he swung and he hit him in his genitals, but Gast, his name was um, George Gast, the chief of police. He denied that. And then he goes and, you know, he can see him slam this guy into the wall. His head kind of bounces. And then he goes at the elevator. and We don't know what happens next. So they're saying, you know, this wasn't reported as a use of force. This was unnecessary. The man was handcuffed already. Gas just didn't like how he was being spoken to. So we talked about that. And then the second incident was where he was just walking by a room. And there was another guy who was just mouthing off to some officers, handcuffed again. And Gas comes in and starts just going back and forth. It's a verbal altercation. And then he eventually tells what we believe to be a rookie officer to take the handcuffs off of this young kid who was arrested on a drug charge. With that incident, people said it was concerning because, you know, this kid could have gone from a drug charge to an assaulting an officer charge. Because he said, he said, you know, put your hands on me. So the kid was uncuffed and he basically was like, okay, let's fight. So people just said, this this is inappropriate. This is not okay. I won't get into the nitty gritty of, they kind of tried to talk me out of doing the story. I was called in after I requested the video and they said, oh, we'll show you the video. See, it's not that bad. It's not what they described to you. Yeah, it was just, you know, and I was like, you know what? Okay, I can see it, but I have one opinion. Other people might have a different opinion. And then we, we sat down for the interview with the chief. So did you do a, well, let me back this up for a second. Did, you know, you said that, that, that some people told you about this. Was there any investigation about this or was it just a matter of this, these incidents happened? Nothing, this, we think that this needs to be looked into. So um, during the course of my investigation, I found that this had been sent to the district attorney and the uh, inspector general's office for review, both of these incidents, because I guess somebody had reported it internally and they said that they cleared him. He did nothing wrong. And I reported that. And you, and did you break the story? Did you, did you like FOIA documents in the video to get it? Or was this something that had already been out there? No, it's, and I didn't know. Okay. So here's the thing about me. I'm very active on Twitter and I call them my Twitter friends, but some of my, all of my best investigations have come from somebody DMing me, sending me a direct message. And so somebody has sent me this message and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll look into it. And when I go to tell my bosses, after I have enough material, I said, hey, I have this video. And my bosses flipped out. They said, you have that video? And I was like, yeah, what do you mean? I'm telling you about the story. Apparently, in our market in Buffalo, 
all the stations have known about this incident for years and nobody could get the video. Um, and so I was like, oh no, I have it right here. And so they watched it. And so, so yeah, it had been talked about. There were rumors, people had heard about it, but this was the first time anybody outside of the NFTA saw the video themselves. Someone had leaked it to you, Correct. I guess. Yeah, it was leaked. Okay. Uh, leaked to you. And, and that's, you know, actually that, that sort of brings up a point that I want to ask you about a little bit later about anonymous sources. But um, so, so you investigated this, they did not want, you know, you know, you reported it after they had told you that, that, you know, they tried to dissuade you from doing that. Did you get any, did you get much blowback from them and, and from the public? Not from the public at all, honestly. Um, and I tried to frame the story at, and I, I, I wanted to lay out all the details. And a lot of my reporting is honestly just showing people, to me it's shocking, but showing people how much is legal, how much is allowed in any sort of government agency, police agency, agency because I don't think people understand. So when I said, here are the videos, people were concerned about it, but he was cleared and he stood by it all. If you look at the interview, I was like, do you think this was inappropriate? He's like, no, this wasn't any sort of use of force. Nope. I was like, wow. Okay. And I just wanted to present that to the viewer to let them decide. So did that all occur before the, the demonstrations on social equity that came out after George Floyd's death? It came out after. So was there, you know, was there sort of a, a raised awareness in the community that, you know, we need to look at the way police are doing things? Absolutely. That's been a great portion of my reporting is examining these structures. I've been examining structures in place for police and whether the public needs to re-examine that. Everyone's really scrutinizing, you know, the contracts between the unions, how police are trained, what they're allowed to do, what their rights are, what our rights are. So this piece came at a moment where everyone's looking very closely at our police forces and saying, do we think that the amount of power they have is appropriate? And I think it goes to what you were saying before about explaining to people what what is legal because a lot of people might think oh yeah that guy should have been prosecuted or something or that was bad just by by observing it but they may not realize that no he didn't really do anything bad because those particular procedures are are in place legally. so then it becomes more of it yeah legally so then it becomes more a matter of okay it's not necessarily about punishing one police officer it's actually looking at the the entire structure you know, maybe seriously considering changing it. Yeah, exactly. That's why I said it's context. I need to put these stories when you, that situation we talked about the 74 year old protester, perfectly legal. That's how they were trained. You push somebody. The only reason those officers were charged was because of the man's age and the fact that he got hurt. There are legal requirements. And I, I did another story of an example of like a younger woman that was pushed, flew backwards, broke ribs, perfectly legal. So yeah, it, it's context. Are the systems we have in place working. Yeah. And, you know, I saw that a lot in, in DC when some of the coverage of that where, you know, police might use, you know, oh, they were out after curfew or they weren't following a lawful order to disperse or to move away. And so that allowed me to do whatever I needed to do. It's really kind of fascinating. So now, so let's, let's talk about Mr. or Mayor Davis of Tonawanda. What was the mask he was wearing? Oh, a corn mask. He was wearing a corn mask. It was, yeah, the band, the band Corn, and I looked at that, and I was like, you know, maybe that's, you know, okay, you're a fan of Corn, the band, that's great. Maybe that's not the most diplomatic thing to be wearing. Not that there's anything wrong with liking Corn. It just seemed, it seemed it seemed very incongruous. That's a debatable thing for some people. Oh yeah, well, yeah, this is Western, and people they like their rock, and they like it heavy. Just saying. Anywho, 
what is the story behind Mr. Davis and how did you find out about it and how did you cover it? Yeah, yeah, you almost have no words for this story, honestly, when you see it. And I do have to go back to the corn mask. That went viral. There are posts on Twitter that have like tens of thousands of likes, like, what is going on here? And people said the same thing. They were like, why would you wear this? He had all the topics ahead of time. He knew every single question I was going to ask him, allegations of abuse, allegations of hidden, everything we covered. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. And he wore a corn mask. And I was like, listen, I respect health boundaries. I offered to keep mine on. We were more than six feet apart. I was like, I'll keep mine on if you feel more comfortable. He said he's keeping his on no matter what. So how this story came to me, it was after I was covering these protests, I was out there, people remember watching this very long live shot I had. It was 75 minutes and I was getting a lot of messages on Twitter. And this one person messaged me saying, hey, do you wanna hear a story about corruption, really nasty stuff going on in the city of Tonawanda? And I was like, I'm just trying to recover. So I said, I'll get back to that message. And then the person messaged me again saying, oh, if you don't want to hear about it, no problem. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm so sorry. I just, I was busy. What do you have? And what this person had was just, it was like a manifesto of city of Tonawanda corruption, just documents on top of documents, on top of emails, on top of, I promise you, I barely did any work on this story because of how much was just in black and white. And I was just in disbelief. And so I started, of course, verifying some of these documents, looking for additional sources, speaking to different people. And it was just person after person saying, yeah, this happened. Or yeah, these emails are true. And it really all centers around an investigation that the mayor's own common council had on him two years ago. And they cleared him of eight different incidents of corruption, cleared him entirely. And two of those things were illegal, not just, you know, a little unethical, they were illegal. And so I was like, well, let's talk about it. Let let me do my own investigation on some of these things. And that included getting a, a, securing a contract for his brother's business. I think that was one of them. Yeah, there were two issues with bids. One was a city project they awarded the bid to his brother, and there were various reasons why it shouldn't have happened. They didn't follow their own policy. His brother didn't have the proper permits. And also, Davis said that he recused himself, but then emails we found, independently obtained, and then some from the city show that he was you know, emailing all along. And then we saw there was one part of the investigation where he said, okay, I've excused myself, but his executive assistant was still in charge of the project. And his executive assistant went in and made handwritten adjustments to this bid so that his brother would be the low bid. And if you know anything about government contracts, cities, government entities, they typically have to award to the lowest bidder to save taxpayer money, et cetera. So his brother came in as the low bid weeks before anybody else bid on the project according to the paperwork, right? So, you know, that was one of those situations where it's like, I, there's no email that he said, give this to my brother. There are 10 other things that you can draw your own conclusion about what happened here. And nepotism is illegal in terms of things like that. Our our attorney said, you know, you can't be awarding contracts to family members. And he actually put in writing, this was back when he was a council member 13 years ago. He was asking the, somebody who works for the city about a bid. And he said his friend wanted to bid on the project. And his response was, okay, so all we have to do is email out this RFP to cover our asses and I can tell my friend to bid this, you know? So it it was just in black and white. He literally said, here's how we cover our ass so I can give this bid to my friend. 
and I think the, cra- I'm going to wrap this up, but the craziest part about this whole story is the mayor at the time blasted him for this. He was like, this is so corrupt. This is so illegal. Happened 13 years ago. Now that he's mayor, Rick Davis, that same mayor was on the ethics committee that looked into him and cleared him, said he did nothing wrong. It's like a man investigating his own position. And I'm like, everyone's like, well, that's some of the pushback I got on the story. People in Tonawanda are saying, oh, he was cleared. He was cleared. And I was like, no, I don't think you're understanding. The city has failed on three fronts now. The mayor has failed to do his duty. The common council has failed to hold him accountable. And this ethics committee formed of his counterparts has failed to hold him accountable as well. It's a problem. So you also spoke to Davis's ex-wife. What did that have to do with a larger issue around corruption? Yeah, this one, when we talked earlier about how people try to distract from the point of the story, I actually did not include his ex-wife in my broadcast report or my web copy. I spoke with her because I had gotten it on three separate sources that the city of Tonawanda police were helping him to obscure some records. There were a few domestic violence incidents where, oh, first off, I filed for police reports from 2015 to today, and I got 33 reports back. And when I asked him, I said, do you know how many times your name comes up in a police report? He said he didn't know. I don't know about you, but I can tell you exactly how many times I've been in a police report in the past five years. Zero. 33 times. And I had a police source, somebody who was an officer who works for this department, said there are some reports that are no longer in the system. And there are some reports that should have been filed that were never filed, which is just a very, very serious accusation. But when you have from three separate people, it it becomes a little bit more of like a reality that that's something you really need to dig deeper on. And so I wasn't necessarily prepared to air some of that yet. But like I said, I sent him all the topics ahead of time. I asked him about it. I said, you know, your wife is accusing you of these things. Is that true? Are there police reports that are missing? He just brushed it all off, brushed it all off. And I said, okay, I'll hold that for when I'm ready. In the morning, the investigation runs. He puts out this statement online. And in the statement, it's just, it goes on and on. It's about three or four pages long. And he talks about the domestic violence at length and, you know, his response to it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is nowhere in my, the report had been out by that time, you know, at least the web copy. I was like, I didn't talk about this at all, at all. It comes up nowhere. He didn't even read the report. So he, he broke his own uh, story there. Absolutely. And then I said, wow. (laughs) Yes. He told himself, he told on himself. So now it's out in the open. One of the other charges was that he was buying sports tickets and he had basically used uh, city funds to purchase them, but then paid back the city funds. Mm-hmm. So they were plane tickets. He went on a trip to D.C. and it was government business. He was going to a mayor's convention or sort. Uh, President Obama had invited a bunch of mayors there. So that was great. But instead of just purchasing his own ticket, he bought his girlfriend at the time ticket, paid her baggage fees, etc., with the city credit card because he wanted to take her along for a surprise proposal. And so that's stealing. You can't do that. You cannot use government funds for personal purposes. And the whole interview, you'll see it's a back and forth. He's like, I paid it back. I paid it back. And I said, but you can't do that. You, You can't go buy a $10 sandwich for a personal reason, you know, and pay it back. But he just felt like it was justified. So I think you talked a little bit about how you're using social media 
to source some of this, you're getting people who are direct messaging you and, and you're involved in conversations with people in social media. How do you generally, you know, what's your approach to finding stories and, and sort of using social media to, to promote and, um, you know, sort of grow the stories? Yeah, I hate social media. If I didn't have this job, <laughs> if I didn't have this job, I would be off of it entirely. But I finally, just throughout the protests, I finally have started to see some light in it. And I've started to use it for my benefit. So in terms of social media, like I said, it's where I get some of my best stories, but it's only because people feel so connected to me. I'm a process journalist. They see every stage of my investigation. Sometimes I tell them what I'm about to investigate which is not a good technique for investigative journalists. I wouldn't recommend telling people ahead of time, but only in certain situations would I say, like, I'm coming after you just so you know. It's happened once. So people just feel like they know and they want to be a part of it. And I'm like, jump on board. You know more than I do. So people will just send me ideas all the time. They'll send me stuff to listen to. They'll send me documents. I love that. And then I go and I do my process to verify it. But then once it gets to telling the story, my biggest frustration, I think, as a journalist is, you know, our time constraints, being a broadcast journalist, not having enough time to really connect the dots. And so I do that online. I do my story on broadcast and web, and then I go to my Twitter page, and I'm breaking it down step by step. And I'm letting you know, hey, this wasn't in my story, but I'm telling you about it because he just told you about it. And here's a response or, oh, these emails that I got, just so you know, they're doing business on their personal emails and I had to get this this way. And people just love that inside view of journalism. And I think it gives people a better appreciation for what we do. People don't know how difficult it is to do this work. And so it's nice to let them know, like, no, I'm, I'm very serious about this. And I want, I want you to see exactly what goes into it. And the response has just been amazing. It's a, a real value to add transparency to your process because then, then people see that you're not slanted or you're not trying to spin something a certain way and then they can, they're more trusting with you. And so eventually maybe they have an idea for a story that they want to get to you and they trust you because they know how you're going to approach something like that. Investigative news, TV investigative news, what would you, you know, what advice would you give to somebody who might want to get in, involved in, in investigative news? In broadcast, I would say you must have an incredibly thick skin. I do, and it still gets to me sometimes. The mayor's story ran last week, and I was really proud of it. But then I get, you know, that pushback and some negative comments. And they couldn't attack the story, so they started to attack me as a person, right? And, you know, I just had a day where I was like, dang, I'm, I'm sad. I want to feel good about this, but people are trying to make me feel bad. And it slips in a little bit. So I would say the first thing you need to do is have a tough skin. Second thing, you have to be very critical of everything. The problem with news today is there's so much of it and we're trying to keep up that sometimes we, we become stenographers and we'll, we'll put something out that is just PR for the city or PR for a person. So, so be critical. You know, the, yesterday the city council named a street Black Lives Matter way and everyone's like, this is so great. And I was like, ah, ah, wait, wait a second. They named a, a predominantly Black street in a black neighborhood black lives matter way where most of the people think that black lives do matter they didn't do a thing here understand that you know yeah that's the martin luther king jr highway uh, solution. <laughs> exactly exactly like, what neighborhood yeah. is that going to go through i wonder right right so so just be critical you know don't be a snob say how much i want you to know how much it's going to cost you for this like pr stunt and then the last thing is just to always just research. You got to be ready to do long-term projects, which is tough 
with this daily grind, but just be tenacious. Do you have a do you have a daily requirement? I'm an anchor and I'm a general assignment reporter. I actually sneaked onto our investigative team. I wasn't hired as an investigator. They never actually told me I became an investigator. All of a sudden I just see myself on that page on our website and I was like, oh, <laughs> is that me now? <laughs> so um, every single day I come into work, I anchor our newscast, I shoot promos, I go out and shoot interviews, write the story, do a, a piece for our six o'clock show. And then the last two hours of my day, I get to slowly chip away at some of my investigations. So it's a heck of a schedule. You must put in a lot of hours. How, how many hours do you think you put in a week? <laughs> how many hours on my timesheet? 40. How many hours do I work each week? I added it up one time. It's pretty close to like 78 hours. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy when you go, I mean, you got to go, you know, go out and cover a demonstration. That's, it's going to take time to get there and you're going to be out there for, you know, God knows how long because you don't know what's going to happen. But that's, that's kind of the name of the game. Madison, this, this has been a, a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. What is it that you like best about your job? Oh, I love learning. I graduated from college in two and a half years on accident because I love to learn. And I just was constantly wanting to take things in. And so, especially things I don't understand. So being able to go out and learn something new about a different sector of life every day is fascinating to me. You know, I'm a mini expert on everything, <laughs> except for science and math. I still can't add, but I think that's the best part of the job, meeting people and learning what they know. I've been talking to Madison Carter, WKBW Buffalo reporter. She's been talking to us about investigative journalism and some of the big stories she's been covering recently. Madison, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>